politics Some culture and craft beer Politics And that is why you're here Politics Bottoms up Bottoms up and welcome back. This is Blotto. After taking a summer sabbatical, I realized the last episode I had recorded was July, I'm sorry, June 30th. So it has been a while since I've put my dulcet tones and my rather bland opinions on the airway. But here we are, and I'm glad to be back. I have no idea as to the frequency that I would continue to record podcasts, hopefully with some frequency. Someone asked me about it the other day, and I I told them the reason I really hadn't been recording is because for a large part of the summer, I've also stayed away from political news. Um, I haven't stayed away from what's happening, but I haven't taken that extra deep dive, and I've also just kind of wanted things to play out because they're really playing out at a snail's pace as they sometimes do in politics. But, you know, after having the time to to do this this week and having a number of topics that I feel need uh, to be, I don't know, need to be addressed by me, I don't know, it sounds arrogant. I just thought maybe it was kind of right to, you know, put another bottoms up out into the airways. I also want to keep the podcast somewhat relevant. Not really sure if, you know, we're ever going to get to significant listenership. So those that are listening feel very special and you should. But I think it's a good brand and I I think the the concept was uh, or is uh, a solid concept. And so that's part of me wants to continue on. Maybe also the fact that, you know, I'm kind of a diehard and, you know, don't want to throw in the towel, be a quitter, so to speak. Uh, the one thing I'm not quitting is drinking. So let's see here uh, what I got. Um, I've got an Arbor Brewing Company, and this is called the Night Fox, which is a dark amber, which, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, dark amber is kind of like saying dark red. You know, you don't have dark red. After red, you get maroon. You don't have light red. Lighter than red is pink. Isn't dark amber just a different color? So why wouldn't they call it that? And they don't really say much about it other than that. Um, Arbor Brewing is uh, brewed in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which I also think is kind of funny. I guess they're trying to capitalize on the popularity that is Ann Arbor, but they're really in the sister city, which is Ypsilanti, which is not nearly as popular. I don't want to slight Ypsilanti at all. Ann Arbor has the school, the University of Michigan, and it is a destination for people to go and, you know, recreate, uh, so to speak. And Ypsilanti, not so much. Uh, they do have a fine learning institution there in, in Eastern Michigan University, but it's not necessarily known as a place to go and quaff a few brews like Ann Arbor would be. So nonetheless, I've got a dark amber by Arbor Brewing Company. I'm a little concerned about my my beer refrigerator. It seems like it uh, may be losing a little bit of uh, coldness to it. I might have to look into that. Now, that would be a do-it-yourself project that is above my pay grade. But do-it-yourself projects was something I was going to talk about here towards the end of the podcast once we get through 
the, uh, the political topics. So it is certainly a dark amber, and I see amber, I guess, more as a color of a beer than a style, but it certainly is a style. And, you know, this this kind of falls between, say, you know, like an amber and a porter. It really just kind of looks like a brown ale to me. Um, oh, it's very sweet and malty on the nose. A lot of really nice flavors in there, I'm sure. So let's give it a try. Oh, there's um, some pretty strong coffee notes in there, maybe some chocolate. So it does, it does really uh, present itself more as a darker beer uh, than just a dark amber. Uh, I, I thought it was going to be lighter in flavor as ambers are kind of, you know, well-balanced beers. And there's really a bitter linger to it, but it's not offensive at all because it is such a a a, a rich beer. I want to stay away from the word dark again. So it's a, it's a very rich beer to be a, a dark amber. First impressions are I, I really like it. So I'm going to continue drinking it. And if my impression changes, I'll let you know. I'm going to assume that it's not uh, because I do like the notes that I taste in there. The bitter linger is okay for this kind of beer. Uh, it's got great mouthfeel and wonderful aroma. Absolutely wonderful. Here's to uh, Arbor Brewing. And if you're in the area, you should seek them out, I suppose. Uh, first thing I thought I'd, I'd hit on today, the topic of the decade, and that would be uh, COVID. And just you know, explain kind of where I'm at with this and maybe, you know, thinking about where I should be or what others are doing. Uh, I've pretty much put away the mask and, you know, Pop-Tart thinks that I probably ought to wear it more than I do. And I, I'm not going to argue that point. I probably should wear it more than I do. You know, it's it's still a problem for people and there are more and more breakthrough cases. I don't know if the percent is going up or down. My oldest sister is an example of a breakthrough case, uh, but she didn't get ill at all. Um, she had reason to get tested, and she, she tested positive, and really no side effects to speak of. So, you know, the vaccine, because she was vaccinated, the vaccine really worked for her. And if it was the Delta variant or whatever, I don't know but uh, it didn't affect her in any sort of negative way. However, then she could have been a transmitter or a carrier of it, I suppose. Those are some of the questions that I still have is, if I'm vaccinated and I do catch it, then vaccination protects me, but does it protect me from passing it on to someone else? And maybe since I don't know the answer to that. Maybe that is why I should wear my mask in, in public more than I do. So, you know, if anyone wants to beat me up for not wearing a mask in, in public, I, I would not take exception to that unless you really beat me up. Then I would take exception to that. But I, I meant figuratively, not literally. And I don't even really mean verbally abusive. <laughs> you know, because words hurt too. I, I just mean maybe like... From the comfort of your living room saying, hey, you know, Blotto, he's really kind of a douchebag if he doesn't wear a mask. You know, someplace where I can't hear it. Uh, but um, I think that it's it's an interesting time. And, uh, you know, this kind of brings me to another point. Uh, I, I was on the phone with a customer of mine today who I had not met ever physically because COVID. And this is in my corporate job. 
And uh, I was recently given this territory and it came with this customer and we had our first phone conversation today. And he was from Texas and you know, right away he wanted to go into right-wing politics. And, you know, that says a lot to me about this guy's character. Like, he doesn't know me. He doesn't know who I am. We're supposed to talk business. And, you know, he, he wants to talk about the governor of Michigan, whatever. And, you know, I told him that eventually I would get down to, to see him in Texas as soon as we're allowed to travel again. And he he, he made the comment why, why can't you travel? And I knew where he was going with this, and he knew where, where, where I was going with this. And I said, well, you know, my company still has a policy of no travel, you know, due to COVID and COVID concerns. And he said, well, in Texas, there is no COVID, and there never was. And, you know, I'm like, I just sort of chuckled, and I'm like, yeah, that would be nice. And I just kind of moved on and tried to avoid it. You know, and I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised somebody in Texas, but it could have been somebody here in Michigan took that attitude. That said, I just, everyone's still just like they were during the height of the lockdown and the, the pandemic is still trying to find their own way. And it's very difficult to do. And in many ways, I, I kind of feel like, you know, there's really not necessarily any wrongs or rights as long as you're vaccinated. If you're not getting vaccinated, you are wrong, 100% wrong. And I wouldn't have to worry about wearing a mask if everyone else got vaccinated. And, and neither would anybody else. Fortunately, most of the people that I come in contact with are vaccinated. Anyway, so that's kind of all I could say about COVID right now. Uh, though There's the unknowns uh, about if you're contagious, even if you've been vaccinated. The, the other thing that I think is still unknown to me is, are some people just not susceptible to catching COVID? So in other words, if you put me in a room with three people that all had COVID, would I ever test positive? Or is it that my body and immune system just isn't susceptible to COVID and therefore I always have a negative test? I, I don't know, and I'm not trying to purport that I am in any manner uh, immune to COVID, but you know, I just I, I just think those kind of questions are, are, you know, because you still only had whatever percent of the population, three four percent of the population test positive. Does that mean that the other ninety six percent just didn't get it or just don't get it? Oh, and one last thing I would also add about COVID, and that is this thing about having vaccine passports. And I think this is pretty fascinating because I didn't think that this would actually ever happen, but. Vaccine passports are a real thing, and you know New York is mandating them, and I think maybe LA is as well. As I've talked about in the past, I used to go to a lot of concerts, and I used to go with Pop Tart and another couple, and you know that was kind of our scene. Just we would get together and go to a lot of concerts, but they don't want to be vaccinated. Over the years, they've become a little bit more right in their thinking, right wing. But it's really kind of different than that. It's it's more about skepticism and suspicion of the government, and the government isn't going to tell them what to do. And so hence, they have had to forfeit several concert tickets that, as two couples, we were going to go. And it really kind of sucks because some of these shows... Pop-Tart could even give a crap about. And she was only going because it was a couple's night out. 
And so now I'm kind of dragging her along because I wasn't going to turn in my ticket because my friends uh, don't want to get vaccinated. The, the wife in, in, in this couple, she's, she's quitting her job because she doesn't want to get vaccinated. She's in the healthcare industry. And they were accepting negative COVID tests for a while. Eventually, they said, no, you just got to get vaccinated. And if you don't get vaccinated, you're getting laid off. And so she's decided to take early retirement, air quotes. And, you know, I just find it remarkable. I mean, these are what I would think are normally fairly bright people. And they have painted themselves into a corner and they're not budging. And it's ridiculous. You know, it's it's affected my life now, too. Maybe I'm selfish, but it's affected us. Now, they have, both have had COVID already. The one has lingering effects. But now she comes up with this excuse that she can't get the vaccine because of other medical conditions. I can't argue that. I don't know what her other medical conditions are, and nor would I inquire. That's her business. But of all the reading that I've done on COVID, I, I think that it's very rare when a doctor would, a legitimate doctor, would recommend that you don't get the vaccine if you're a healthy, you know, adult person between the ages of 13 and 75 or whatever it is, which, you know, she falls within that. And, and now they're, you know, going to kids as young as six and saying it's okay there. I don't know what those medical conditions might be, and that's really not my business. But my suspicion and skepticism goes up. I think it's more about their libertarian you know, positions, which I know that over the years in podcasting at Pottoms Up, we've talked about libertarianism and, and by and large, it's a, it's a bunch of bullshit. Okay, so now that's really enough about um, COVID. Really enjoying this beer. Um, I'm glad that it came in a six pack. So since it's been so long since I've, I've been on, um, a couple of topics before we get into the uh, politics du jour, which is like debt ceiling and Mitch McConnell and all those mechanisms and things like that that are happening in Washington as I speak. I probably should have done one about the Texas abortion law and you know just how vile and dangerous it is and what it means to the country and, and all that stuff. Is so true, and it's it's really um, uh, it's really abominable what the Texas legislation has done, and what they've tried to do as a workaround. And the Supreme Court has gone along with them, saying it is a workaround uh, to say that it's it's civil litigation. It's it's civilly uh, illegal to have an abortion past six weeks, but not criminal. And therefore, you'd be susceptible to lawsuits by any number of people. And I, I have sort of two thoughts on this that I don't think are getting enough play in the media. The first is federal law states that you cannot bring suit to someone, whether it's criminal or civil, without having standing, without being the injured party. And this law basically says that anyone can sue anyone for either providing an abortion or having an abortion or assisting an abortion, you know, similar to, say, like the Uber driver taking um, the, the woman to the abortion clinic. And, you know, they don't have to have standing. I, I don't know what the injury will be. On, on those grounds, this should have been unconstitutional, but the Supreme Court 
you know, basically look the other way. And of course, that's very dangerous as other cases like the Missouri law, and then there might be one in Mississippi or Louisiana that's also going to be heard by the Supreme Court, I think. You know, the federal statute of having uh, been injured or having stand, standing in a lawsuit trumps uh, any state uh, laws that are made around that. And, and I think this has got to be tested. There is the doctor who uh, has come forward and said, yeah, I committed a illegal abortion and what are you going to do about it? Sue me. And so there is that lawsuit where he's basically testing the lawsuit and uh, it will be really fascinating to see how, how that comes out. Also, what is the speed of which that lawsuit moves through the courts? Because we definitely would want it to move through the courts prior to the Missouri case. And the the other part that I think is is really kind of not talked about very much is this idea that a abortion is a medical procedure and therefore it is protected by HIPAA laws which are health privacy laws which are very stringent and if you ever go to the doctor which you know I'm sure most uh, of you have you know all about HIPAA laws and signing waivers and what the doctors have to do to make sure of your privacy. And, you know, these were really strengthened back, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, but they are considered to be very strong, stringent laws that don't have a whole lot of wiggle room. And so if you and your doctor are having a private conversation about having an abortion and you're in week nine, who is going to know about that? How is anyone going to know that you have violated the SB8 Texas law by having an abortion beyond six weeks? And I, I hope this is part of what gets challenged in Texas law, either by this doctor that has decided to throw himself out there as, as sort of a guinea pig uh, test case, or by somebody else. Because, you, you, you know, I, I was... I did a little Googling on this to find out why it's not talked about. And really, the only thing I came up with is that someone can suspect you've had an abortion and then file a lawsuit. But as far as I know, courts are not going to move forward with a lawsuit just because you suspect something. I mean, there could be people that get involved in the lawsuit that have, you know, some sort of actual firsthand knowledge, right? You know, it, it, it could be the father, for instance, who doesn't want, you know, the woman to get an abortion and, you know, therefore files a lawsuit and knows the timing of, of the pregnancy. But outside of that, um, almost everything else is hearsay in terms of when you thought this person was impregnated and when you thought this person got the abortion because... You don't know they're getting an abortion unless, you know, you've gotten to, into their medical records, which would be a HIPAA violation. You know, the the Texas law went into effect, I don't know, maybe it was a month ago, and, you know, I haven't heard much about it, but I'm really surprised by the abortion clinics in Texas that have decided to try and meet the standard of the law by not offering abortions for those women uh, that um, are past the six weeks. And that, to me, is where 
you know, some of these clinics have to step up, they have to provide the abortion, and then let this play out because I don't see how you get around the HIPAA laws. You know, you wouldn't be able to sue the Uber driver for driving them because, again, that would be hearsay, right? You know, in terms of what he knew about the abortion or what he knew those services were. And hearsay is not admissible. And it's certainly not going to be anything that a judge uh, should even consider. Now, we're talking about Texas judges and, you know, maybe they just threw out the law. A, A judge can order the medical records to be part of discovery in a lawsuit or criminal case. But there has to be, you know, some other base for that requirement. It, it just can't be because I think they had an abortion after six weeks. Uh, boy, I, I hope not, you, you know, because then technically this law could start to uh, unravel all kinds of other things. And lastly, what I would say about uh, abortion restrictions is these things never include penalties for the men who impregnate these women who also, whatever the number is, 80% of the time or 90% of the time, don't want the pregnancy to continue either. And, you know, getting pregnant is a two-way street. And in most time, most in most cases, a unwanted pregnancy is uh, due to the male just preferring not to wear a condom. You know, there doesn't ever seem to be any repercussions or consequences for men who create unwanted pregnancies. And it's, it's, it's really quite ridiculous. And it shows what these abortion laws are all about. And that is controlling women, posing the federal legislation uh, upon the privacy of others. That's really what it's about. And then, of course, uh, forced birth is the upshot. All right. Um, the other thing that uh, I, I did kind of want to mention very quickly and that was, and this is kind of goes back a ways, but I don't think we can, I don't think we can gloss these things over anymore, or we shouldn't gloss them over because they're really, po- they're, they're, because they're really important in setting the stage for where we are now. And there's really sort of two, two different topics that I kind of want to mention here. Uh, the first is the Bill Barr, John Durham report. Recall Bill Barr set up a, a, a special investigator, special counsel to investigate the origins of the Trump-Russia connection. And, you know, Durham was flying all over the globe and he was talking to all these people. And the Republicans just kept saying, wait, 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 wait until you see this and heads are going to roll and people are going to go to jail. And, you know, it was going to vindicate Trump and that he never had any connections with Russia and the the whole Mueller thing was a hoax. And well, you know, Durham finally released his report, uh, you know, last month and it was leaked to the media and, and it's a nothing burger. Like he didn't find anything. There's one indictment for basically a Democratic attorney who they're saying lied to federal investigators when he presented information connecting Trump to Russia. And they asked him who he was working for, and he said nobody. And as it turned out, he may have been on the payroll of the Clinton campaign at the time. Uh, but he's denied the fact that he said that he wasn't. 
and it's some contemporaneous note-taking or whatnot. But none of that makes all the evidence of Trump's connections and Manafort's connections to Russia go away. And, you know, even since that time, you know, I think there's even been more information to come out regarding Manafort's connection and what what his motivations were in, in terms of passing on critical campaign polling data to the Russians. And that has never really been explained. But in my mind, that's, you know, the definition of collusion. Um, so I don't want to relitigate that all of that here on the podcast again. My point is that when these things sort of come back up to the surface over time, we shouldn't just ignore them. And we need to make sure that they get pointed out, especially to those right wingers and those, you know, Trumpsters and people that believed that this was all a hoax. Well, now you have the attorney general appointed by Trump setting up an investigation and a special counsel that reported to him wasn't completely independent. And 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 that person's job was to prove that it was a hoax. And he failed to do that. And, you know, without bringing that to the forefront again, you know, people just continue to believe in, you know, maybe what was the first lie about the Trump presidency, that Russia was a hoax. And now it's, you know, the, and then that morphed into the big lie. That kind of brings me to the other, the other thing that has happened that it needs to be pulled into the spotlight more than it is, and that's the Arizona audit. So, you know, for months, and it was just a crazy amount of time for the little amount of work that they did, for months and months and weeks and weeks, you know, the Republicans and Trumpsters were, you know, leaning on this Arizona audit of Maricopa County to say that the election uh, was rigged and that Trump really won and that you know, millions and millions of illegals voted and, you know, the audit was going to show all this. Well, the audit results came out, I don't know, like two weeks ago. And they were so, they were, they were so useless. They didn't even really make the news. Like only a couple people probably talked about them. You know, the Rachel Maddows of the world who, who see this as, as, as a story that is more important than just the news of, okay, the audit didn't really show anything other than Trump lost by another 360 votes, which is just laughable, right? It's really important to get back into the face of these Republicans and these Trumpsters and these right-wingers and say, you know, how many more other things can you possibly be wrong about? Like everything that you said has come up and ha over time where the truth has been borne out, has shown you to be a fool. And that needs to be said, like in the most, you know, sort of vitriolic way, you know, like, like <laughs> I, I try not to, to mix, you know, business with politics. You know, I, I could say that to the guy on the phone today who immediately wanted to talk about how my governor was ruining our state or whatever he was, wherever he wanted to go with that. I'm not even sure. But, you know, I could have said, what, what about the Arizona audit? How'd that work out for you? What about the John Durham report? How'd that work out for you? One of the things that I really believe is that over time, the, the truth really does surface. Sometimes that time can be measured in months, 
but sometimes that time doesn't get measured for decades or you know e even centuries but eventually the reality of what took place and those that really study history do so in a way that becomes impartial the the true the true students of history and then that becomes part of our past or part of our our history again um, you know just like we we have a different understanding about some of our founding fathers for you know being slave owners for instance and you know that history has always been there but it's over time the truth about it that that, that history has become more obvious to you know more people and you know the same thing can play out just in short term politics you know that's why i think you know just to kind of circle back that the durham report and the az audit are very very newsworthy and then lastly um, let's kind of talk about what is the latest happening in Washington right now. And of course, all these things tie together, but it's, it's quite laughable. And that is this sort of triangulation or this intersection, if you will, of three different, you know, legislative maneuvers that all have to, or are all taking place. And what I'm talking about is there's the infrastructure bill, which I'll refer to as kind of the hard infrastructure bill, the 1.2 trillion that uh, received a number of Republican votes, really just enough to pass out of the Senate. So they got their 60 and many of the other Republican senators decided not to vote for it, knowing that it was going to pass. And then they don't have to say they voted for it, whatever. This is roads and bridges and that kind of infrastructure. So that passes the Senate. Then the other one is the human infrastructure bill, which is all part of Biden's Build Back Better. That's $3.5 And the House is kind of, the House has already passed it, I think. Got to get this right. And the Senate is not going to take it up. A couple of Democratic senators are going to hold it up because they're trying to placate to whatever sort of Republicans still support them. And I can't, I can't in their, in, in their states, mansion and cinema, although cinema, cinema, I think she's got even like wackier kind of motivations. I don't think she knows what the fuck she's doing, but mansion is really kind of in a red state. And so he, he's trying to play up to that red base a little bit. And as long as they see him as kind of a maverick, he'll probably get reelected. Now, why he's not being primaried, I don't know. I mean, in, in Republican politics, if you don't toe the line, you get primaried. I mean, it is black and white. In Democratic politics, if you don't toe the line, we're going to try and work it so you that we everybody becomes happy, that it, it's all sort of kumbaya, and we don't want to primary you. And I've said for years, everyone ought to be primary. This idea that politics should just be given deference to those incumbents is nonsense. And it's the reason that we have so many you know, lifelong politicians in Washington. And until we start funding primary contenders, I would be in favor of term limits. But if we could figure out a way to make our party candidates better, by having stronger primary contenders, 
then we wouldn't need term limits. Uh, but anyway, uh, very quickly, you know, this, this wrangling that's kind of going on between um, those two bills, right, the, the hard infrastructure bill and the human infrastructure bill, and then the Republicans have now thrown in the debt ceiling. And they're saying, okay, we're not going to vote on the debt ceiling unless you drop the $3.5 million human infrastructure bill. Now, at the same time, it's crazy all this is, the hard infrastructure bill is sitting over in the House. And it was passed by the Senate, bipartisan, but the Progressive Caucus, which is almost 100 members strong, in the Democratic caucuses. It said, we're not going to support this unless the House passes the $3.5 trillion and they can do it through reconciliation. And Manchin and Cinema has, you know, they've said, no, we don't want it through reconciliation. So that's kind of where the standoff is. Pelosi won't take the bill to the floor until she knows she has the votes. And I don't know if she's going to get the votes until the Senate does something. And you know, I, I, I kind of waffle on this, you know, kind of both ways. Not sure where you come down. Should the Progressive Caucus stand strong and hold up the $1.2 which would help a lot of people and help a lot of states? And there's some good things in it. It's not perfect. There's some bad things in it, too. That's why it's bipartisan, I suppose. Or should they let it pass to let those things, you know, land, you know, in, in the states that they're going to help and land uh, at the feet of the people that need the help? You know, by taking a principled stand, yes, you could say that they're 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 hurting their constituents, but that's also kind of the way that Mitch McConnell plays ball. Because, you know, just a couple of days ago he said, "Well, I'm not going to support raising the debt ceiling unless you promise to kill the 3.5 million human infrastructure bill." Now, as of today, I understand that he has kind of caved on that, and I say only kinda. He has agreed to support an extension of the debt ceiling. And I think it only goes till December. It's not a done deal yet. And who knows, it could collapse by the time I'm done recording here. But, um, you know, he's really just agreed to kick the can down the road. I was listening to Al Franken earlier today in the, uh, on the tube, and he was saying that's a good thing and it helps get the Democrats, you know, get their shit together on the 3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill because Manchin and Cinema have said that 3.5 is too much, so they're asking them what their number is. Now, Joe Manchin has said that he doesn't have a number, but in fact he does. It's like another 1.2 trillion because there's a memo that was leaked from his office to the White House, and that's what he proposes to Joe. And so Manchin's been kind of lying when he said that he doesn't really have a number. And really, he does. Now, 1.2 trillion is a far cry from 3.5 million. And cinema, she doesn't really say anything because I think she's somehow beholden to some large donors that don't want some of the things in that bill to pass. You know, she, she's just really turning out to be a POS. Maybe we're all wrong about her, but I don't think so. But in either case, you know, Al Franken says that gives us almost three more months of negotiation to try and figure out what would pass through reconciliation in the Senate for a human infrastructure bill. And you know, 3.5 is a tall order, but I know that the Progressive Caucus is willing to negotiate from that. They've 
intimated that. So maybe they go to three, maybe they go to two, seven, two, five, one, eight, whatever the number is, that money could be well spent. The Republicans are, you know, just all about holding it up and holding the debt ceiling up to placate to a rabid base. And that's it. And, you know, they feel like that rabid base is what's going to continue to win them elections, even though what's in the human infrastructure bill is largely supported by the majority of Americans, which in order to do that, have to be supported by uh, whatever you want to call mainstream Republicans and even some in the rabid base. They're just trying to get through their primaries and, you know, run up against Democrats and then use all the other mechanisms that they put in place to uh, um, suppress a vote and gerrymander uh, and win elections, you know, going forward that way instead of just, you know, majority majority rule. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see, we'll have to see how that plays out. I think the most logical theory as to why McConnell has blinked in this game of chicken on the debt ceiling is because, you know, of all of the economic threats that have been levied uh, if the debt ceiling was to collapse, if it was, if we were to default on our debts. And, you know, it should have already been raised, but the U.S. government is not going to run out of money for like three weeks. And I think we're already a week into that. And should we start defaulting on our loans, it could be absolute catastrophe for the world economy. In the Republican Party, you have a lot of big business people that wouldn't want an economic collapse. And I think that's kind of what got to you know, Mitch McConnell was he probably got a number of phone calls from some very heavy hitters in the global economy, whether they be businessmen or Wall Street people that said, uh, dude, you better not screw this up. Okay. So just back down, start to figure out an exit ramp for yourself because if you fuck up this economy, we're done. And that makes the most sense to me. And I believe that is what happened. Now, He's only done it uh, for a couple of months, and it's not the first time I, I, I believe they've uh, kicked the can down the road for the debt ceiling, and I don't think it's going to be the last, but it does make you wonder, when are the egos going to be bigger than the, the sense of doing what's right? Uh, maybe it's going to be December. It still could be this time. I, I don't know what the latest is. When I'm, I'm done here, I go catch up and Maybe I'll tag on an amending recording to this podcast if something earth-shaking happens, but I don't expect that. All right, so back to the beer. I'm talking more than I'm drinking, but it is very good, and I'm <clears throat> enjoying it immensely. So very quickly, I wanted to wrap up and talk about something that I completed today, sort of give my own advice on this topic. Today, I completed building a shelf that I hung over my turntable to get my records off the floor and put them at eye level uh, so that it's much more convenient and pleasant to peruse them as I try and pick one out. Certainly a lot less strain on the back. And, you know, I did this with some wood that I had around the house. You know, I took my time with it, stained the wood, sanded the wood, varnished the wood, put it together. Uh, I have tools up at my place up north. 
traveled with the wood a couple times to do different things. And, you know, it, it takes some time to do. And then I posted it on Facebook, you know, kind of a before and after. Uh, one, it was just something to share, but two, you know, to hear all the wonderful accolades about what a great job I did building this shelf. Of course, that's why we put things on Facebook. And uh, similarly, um, I had to do some wood modifications to a bourbon cabinet that I purchased as my bourbon collection has grown. And I had to modify that by putting some lighting in an additional shelf and move some of the shelves around, which were not adjustable. And, you know, people have kind of mentioned to me about, you know, how good I am at these sort of things. And kind of my point is, I really don't think I'm very good at it. And, you know, for any of the projects that I do, whether it's you know, like a woodworking, like those two, exa two examples were, or fixing plumbing up at the brewery or, you know, any number of projects that I'm not afraid to tackle on my own. You know, I, I don't particularly see myself as a Bob Vila. I really just kind of see myself as a person that's willing to do it. And that's kind of my advice. Now, I have one other sort of advice that goes along with that. This is a, one of my little mottos that I say all the time. And that is, every job is easy if you have the right tools. And those tools can, you know, vary in different degrees. So, for instance, if you needed to put up a fence, um, you know, if you didn't have a post hole digger, right, you could use like a spade shovel, right? But that's going to be a lot more work than having a post hole digger. If you had a post hole digger, okay, but really you went out and bought motorized auger, then you'd be able to do use that instead of a post hole digger, right? And if you had a motorized auger, but instead you went out and, you know, rented a, uh, a bobcat that had the auger attachment to it, now you just sit in the little bobcat and drill your post holes and you'd be done. So with, with each sort of elevation and tool, the job gets easier to do. Um, now, you know, for most people, they don't have you know, a bobcat sitting around with all the necessary attachments. But even still, you know, hand tools make the job a lot easier to do. And kind of where I was thinking about going with this is, again, just in terms of advice, is in the tool market, the aftermarket is flush with tools, whether it's a table saw, whether it's a drill, whether it's just a back saw with a miter box. And, you know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. Um, you know, because that's a very handy thing to have if you're doing any kind of woodworking. Those tools are easily accessible. I mean, the, the aftermarket for tools, whether they be power tools or hand tools, is the prices are so low. I, it's, it's hard to imagine that if you had a job to do and you had the time to do it, like it was an emergency thing, that you couldn't find the right tools to do. Um, and then secondly, um, you know, it's just about having a plan. And and again, I don't think you need to be an architect to figure out how to build a shelf, but I had a plan. I had a few contingencies to that plan and I ended up actually using one of them. But overall, it was just really kind of up here in the noggin saying, okay, how do I want this thing to look at the end? How do I get there? And do I have the tools and materials to do it? And 
that's kind of my secret, which is no secret, right? Anyway, I'm going to wrap up here. Um, I am really appreciative of you listening, and I'm a little surprised that I was able to chew up about 15 minutes, but maybe that's what happens when you don't podcast for a while. And so I'm pleasantly surprised with that. And hopefully I'll be back on the air uh, soon. So until then, drink up, listen up, and bottoms up. Politics, some culture and craft beer. Politics, and that is why you're here. Politics, I don't know.